Hello, 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 and welcome to the 11th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we're going to be delving into the realm of philosophy, where we will be discussing the topic of objectivism, its founder, Ayn Rand, and the seminal work in which it is displayed, the fictional novel, Atlas Shrugged. Now, for those of you who might be asking where the relevance is between philosophy and economics, you're not alone. I, too, would be similarly suspicious until I learned that on the final lecture of my first ever course in finance and university, my then-professor, Mark LaPlante, actually brought up a passage from Atlas Shrugged. I'm now going to play you a portion of that passage, narrated by Mike Maloney for his YouTube channel, Gold Silver. Francisco turning to them with a gravely courteous smile. So you think that money is the root of all evil, said Francisco. Have you ever asked, what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not a tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible by the men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? Now this short clip, whilst only being a small fraction of the entire speech, already says a lot about the relevance of philosophy and economics. It is only with philosophical inquiry into the nature of money that we can get a deeper appreciation of its role within the economy. In this clip alone, we get a clearer idea of money as a tool of mutual exchange, as a representation of the values being traded with each transaction, telling the story both of the effort and labor of the producer, as well as the trust and acknowledgement of the consumer. This understanding, at least, puts a lot more thought into that often thrown phrase, money is the root of all evil. Now, in terms of philosophy's relationship with economics, however, Peter Bookie, a university professor of economics and philosophy, has this to say, quote, philosophy without economics is daydreaming, and economics without philosophy has no purpose, end quote. Objectivism, then, is more than just about money alone. And helping me to better understand the philosophy of objectivism is my fifth guest on the show, Davin Chi. Davin is currently a second-year student at the Objectivist Academic Center, where he studies philosophy. The Objectivist Academic Center is an online institute which has seen graduates like Don Watkins, who is a Forbes column contributor and author of the book Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality. Davin's interest also extends to the realm of moral philosophy and how morality is pertinent not to just uh, politics, but also economics and its ubiquity in our daily lives. Currently, Davin is the editor of the website Libertarian Society of Singapore. And without further ado, let's move on to the interview. All right, Devin, welcome to the show. Hello, yes. All right. So first off, um, I want to ask you, right, the ideas of Ayn Rand and objectivism are, you know, not to my knowledge, widely known or you know, appreciated in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So how do you first get exposed to her philosophy and, you know, what kind of effect did it, did it have on your worldview? Yeah. Well, I, I start, first started off by chancing across a non-fiction book by Ayn Rand entitled uh, Philosophy, Who Needs It? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was really just mainly a chance encounter you know it just happened to be looking for philosophy books at that point of time right right so philosophy for me back then was perceived to be something like you know very abstract you know most people don't generally go into philosophy it's something it's like something you you discuss over dinner or 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 just debate so it was something it was an abstract discipline that common folk like me would never grasp yeah so thankfully you know uh, miss ran wrote in a very contemporary manner which made her very easy to understand mm-hmm. so when i finished digesting and understanding the key concepts in in this in this book right i, I it felt like a breath of fresh air for me mm-hmm. like i was like drowning my entire life just trying to float and suddenly the whole world made sense i was just pulled up in the surface yeah right. yeah it, it, you know that, that's actually kind of surprising to me because uh normally a, a lot a lot of times when people are first exposed to philosophy they'll mention you know the likes of say 
uh, Socrates or Plato. Mm-hmm. So did someone actually refer you to Ayn Rand, or did you just no, happen to randomly pick it out yourself? No, uh, Rand, Rand was my was my entry into the whole whole world of philosophy. Mm-hmm. I, I believe this is likely because most people think of philosophy as something that is largely very selfless, like you know something that people discuss about but not personally important to their lives, mm-hmm. which which I fundamentally disagree with. Mm. All right, so. Taking up philosophy or reading philosophy in your own spare time is one thing, but then you decide to enroll in the Objectivist Academic Center. So tell us what is why did you decide to enroll in this program and what is the program really like? Well, I had a smattering of understanding of uh, you know just from the books alone there was some understanding of philosophy, yeah. but uh, it, it was just not adequate. You know there were a little bit of there were holes here and there. So yeah. I just want I thought you know it, it would be best to hear from the horse's mouth and the Objectivist Academic Center was something that I felt was capable of doing that. I mean, I've, I've read their brochures, I've, mm. I've seen their graduates, and while this is not something that has, you know, uh, some some prestigious accreditation, it was something that was personally important to me. Mm. So that's why I, I signed up for it. And and I've, I'm, I'm in there for a year plus, and I must say that, you know, the, the texts the text that I have to read, you mm. know, the the, the, philosoph- the key philosophers that I have to understand, you know, mm. we, we're not, I'm not just there just learning about Ayn Rand's philosophy, but mm. I'm also comparing her against other, you know, uh, her contemporaries, and, you know, uh, you know we, we talk about uh, how psychology is related to philosophy, we talk about mm. how, Eman- you know, Immanuel Kant's ideology, and, and stuff like that. We, we go all the bit, all the way back to pre-Socratics and yeah, and, so, and so so it's a pretty intensive program. Uh. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the point here is that I couldn't just take Rand's word for it. I had mm. to study the philosophers and the philosophies that she has mentioned, and to see whether their frameworks made any sense. Mm. So it, it, you know, the 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 online course was a perfect place for me to start delving into the finer aspects of philosophy mm. and to gain further insight into this giant body of knowledge that you know has a has a long long history. I see. I see. Okay, so, you know, we're living in a place like Singapore, right, where people tend to be more pragmatic in terms of, like, what they choose to learn or maybe the careers they... Or maybe the the, the, the things they do in their free time, though, yeah. right? So, do you think that philosophy has a place in Singapore? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, Singaporeans are human beings and human being as a human being, there's simply no choice about the fact that they need and are guided by philosophy. Mm. I mean, just by being pragmatic alone, the, it, it implies, right, that, you know, they, they adhere to some implicit philosophical principles, like, you know, whatever works, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the tenet of, of uh, your pragmatism as in yeah. general. Right. So the, the only choice that we have pertaining to philosophy is whether we choose to identify the philosophy that guides us mm. using rational, explicit terms. Like, you know, we set out what, what are the principles that we ought to, you know, adhere to mm. or simply take the philosophy that we currently have as self-evident and infallible. Mm. Right. So if we, if we allow these, uh, this, this mongrel philosophy, so, I mean, so-called mongrel philosophy to guide us, then this is ultimately insidious and deadly because because there is a specific method right uh, that we must take right in order to enhance our lives. Mm. I, I, this this reminds me of a quote. I, I've watched this. Uh, you know, there's this there's this movie about. Uh, about chess, uh, mm-hmm. you know, about you know, two very famous uh, chess chess players. I can't remember right. the name. Uh, called Pawn Sacrifice, mm. right? And and there's this uh, this American chess player that's that's very famous, mm. right? And and he says, right? I mean, uh, uh, and I find this very very relevant pertaining to philosophy. Yeah. He says that people think, right? He, he's, he's talking about chess. Right. He says people think, right? There are all these choices, yeah. right? But in actuality, there is only one path to success. To win, win the game, so to speak. Huh. Right. So, in in the case of uh, survival, as in of the human being himself, right. uh, yeah, w- there is also only one path to, to succeed and to achieve the things that you want in life. Mm. And and you know you, you there's you know you can't just take shortcuts. You can't just you know make your moves based on chance, emotions, and whims. Mm. Right. So so I, I think Singaporeans need to recognize this selfish importance that philosophy plays in their lives. Mm. So I, I want to build up on that before we move on to the touching on Ayn Rand and Alice Schrock. So I, I, I kind of get what you're talking about. You know, some people, I think, I think most people, they live through lives. If they don't think about philosophy or they don't think through, you know, maybe their rational system or their moral system, yeah. they kind of have a rough idea or some, some kind of principles that they abide by, you know, yeah. some kind of belief, you know, whether what is right, what is wrong. Mm. Would you consider philosophy then, you know, if they do study philosophy, mm-hmm. it's like an explicit look into, say, what kind of rational system you're to adhere to, yes. rather than just a completely, say, you know, moral or emotional kind of system? Well, I, I think there is no divide between that which is moral and that which is rational. Mm. In fact, in fact, I would say that which is rational is moral. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think there is a there is a dichotomy set up by the philosophers over the ages that you know that is moral. I mean, especially with regards to uh, with regard to the the uh, the more 
faith-based ideologies. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, you know, they, they like to use the, or what, what, you know, if you want to ask them, you know, what's the standard for you to measure morality? Some of them would say that, you know, the feelings and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. right? I mean, if, if that were the case, right, then, then obviously there is going to be a divide between, between that which is rational yeah. and that which is, you know, feelings-based. And that, right. yeah, then, then that's where we see the, see the dichotomy take place, mm. right? But I, I, as a, as an objectivist, I would think that, you know, uh, that which is rational is moral. Mm. And in order for us to succeed in life, we have to be rational. I see. Okay, that's good. And let's move on to the questions about Ayn Rand and other show in general. So before we dive into objectivism, right, could yep. you tell us a little bit more about its founder, Ayn Rand, and, you know, her fictional novel, Atlas Shrugged? Right. So Ayn Rand was born in Russia in the year 1905, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, it being Russia, in her life, she experienced firsthand the effects of communism mm-hmm. and was, as a result of that experience, staunchly opposed to the premises of collectivism, which led to communism. Right. Right. So in the late 1925, uh, she, she obtained a permission to leave Soviet Russia for a so-called visit to the relatives in the United States. Mm-hmm. She assured that it was going to be a short visit, yeah. but she left and never returned. I mean, uh, this this is partly because she, she really had an idea because she, uh, back back in Russia, she was exposed to these uh, Western films. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, she, Back then, it was it was like a driving force. You know, she wanted to be a writer. She wanted to do all these things, and and Russia was just not the place for. I mean, at that time, was not the place for mm. her to, to do all of that. Mm. So uh, after she went to the US, she became a, a you know screenwriter, and then she met her husband, and then they got married, mm. and then she, that gave her the time right to start develop developing her you know her idea, uh, her philosophy, mm. and then to translate that into the various works of fiction, which are like uh, We the Living, mm-hmm. Anthem, and The Fountain Hit. Yeah. All which receive accolades uh, and great success. Yeah. So, but the, the key point of those books are very different from you know Atlas Shrugged because Atlas Shrugged explores themes like you know uh, politics, morality, mm. and you know, society. Where whereas the rest of her books are more more about the moral premises of a of a philosophy, which is which which are related, but mm. is, you know the, the key focus is just different. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Personally, personally myself, I found uh, on a literary level, right? I thought Atlas Shrugged introduce some new concept that I didn't really see that much, you know, the idea of, say, the protagonist being this strong, larger-than-life character, whether you're talking about Dagny Taggart or, you know, Hank Reardon, and then you you compare them to the villains. Not Normally, like, in like any, like, you know, how to say, movie, right, where you got, like, the good guys with the bad guys. The bad guys are the ones with, like, the diabolical plan to rule the yeah, world. They've yeah. got all the weapons of mass destruction. Yes, yes. In Alice Shrug, that's not the case. Yes, that's not the case. <laughs> the villains are more like, you know, scurry rats trying to uh, do this all these kind of dubious things. They don't really know how to do anything for themselves. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, this kind of like concept I've never really seen before. It's kind of new to me. Yes. And also, what I thought fascinating is um, this uh, idea, this this eternal struggle of the, the men of... Uh, the, the producers versus the men of pool, mm. which is technically, it's like... Trying to trying to work your way up in the world through yep. through individual effort through trying to produce trying to make a, a living for yourself yep. instead of like uh, the men of pool who mm-hmm. do this by playing around with uh, other people or trading favors for favors yes, you know yes. backstabbing you know uh, uh, yeah, that, that that kind of thing which mm-hmm. I thought was really really fascinating yes. Yeah. Uh, I think Ren Ren is uh, you know very focused on the idea of heroism. Mm. Uh, she, I mean back back then you know there was a the 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 debate was to whether people should write stories like as they are, which mm. is you know uh, what we call in the literary movement a naturalism. Yeah. So people must you know the characters must be believable. Yeah. Right. But but in Ren's context, she she believes in this concept known as romanticism. Right. Mm. So so we we, we uh, you know the for her fiction is something that allows people to see what can and should be. Mm. And, and you know, Atlas Shrugged is just one of her vehicles for her to express, you know, uh, her ideas of what a, what a perfect utopian society should be like, which is Gulch Gulch, mm. right? And, and you know, that, that, you know to, to convey to people, to, to let them see, right, that such reality is possible and mm. it's for them to take. I see. Okay, so uh, before we move on to... I, I just want to touch on a little part here on the, on the, the book Atlas Shrugged itself. Okay. So... I found this uh, concept, this motif of the sort of like sanction of the victim really, really fascinating. Mm. And it is portrayed through the symbol of, you know, Atlas Shrugged, the title of the book itself. 
So can you sort of like, uh, you know, explain what this symbol means, you know, what it's supposed to signify in the book? Right. Uh, from what I do understand, uh, it, it seems to me that, okay, you, you must understand the, the motivation for writing Atlas Shrugged. Back mm-hmm. then, the, the Atlas, Atlas, Atlas Shrugged was supposed to be, the title was known to be The Strike. It was meant to be The Strike. Yeah. So what, what was intended to be, for it to be, right, was to, was to show a world where the producers, right, decided to go on strike. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see strikes happen everywhere, you know, workers decide, you know, today I'm not going to work. Yeah. Right. So, what if the man of the world, the the producers of the world, the, the you know the, the greatest producers of the world, decided mm. that one day, you know, I'm just not going to produce anymore. Mm. Right. And and here here's what what she introduces as the sanction of the victims because people these great producers, especially you can see it manifest itself in the in a guilt right that that moves Hank Reardon along. Mm. Right. He he feels obligated to society. Right. Mm. To to the so called muchas. Right. Yeah. To, to to produce for them. Right. Yeah. Because he, he he you know he feels like there is this duty that that compels him to do things like that. And mm-hmm. and that is that is exactly the sanction. Right. That the muchas want. They want them to feel. They want people to feel guilty mm. about their productive ability so that they can uh, they can you know uh, you know much of them but of course mm-hmm. I mean in reality most people don't act under such explicit premises but yep. back back in Atlas Shrugged right, things are getting desperate so people you know the, all the all their true colours start to reveal themselves and, yeah. and you know they, they, they have to follow the logical conse- consequences of their own ideology so I see I see yeah so so speaking of the the, the, the idea Sorry, the, the symbolism of uh, Atlas Shrugged mm. itself, right? So this myth- myth- mythology, you know, the character Atlas holding the globe, giant globe above yep. his head. He's struggling under the weight of the world. This is taken actually quite literally in the book itself, yeah. yes. whereby the figure of Atlas is could be taken to mean... Uh, you could take any of one of the the, the, the protagonists, prime movers, yes. the prime movers, yes, the protagonists in the novel. Mm. You know, uh, these are the producers. These are the ones who are actually moving and sort of carrying the world on their back. Yes. While you know the rest of them, the the people who the the, the people of pool or the moochers, they're not really doing anything. They can't really do anything, and they just uh, they just uh, leech off or much of the strength of the producer. Mm. And this is what and 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 I thought something about fascinating about here so is that you mentioned this this uh, double sort of. Uh, Morality, right? Between mm. uh, the the that, that is implicated inflicted on some of the, the on, on the producer Hank Reardon. He faces mm. this big conflict whereby some part of him believes that you know uh, he has all these ideas about what it needs to be, why why he needs to be like a producer, how mm. how he has to produce, you know, yeah. uh, ideas of how how to successfully run a business, how to mm. make it profitable, etc., etc. But at the same time, he also adheres to this sort of other morality of yeah. like. Um, you know, obligation to society, yes. helping the weaker person, that, that makes him feel guilty, at the same time gives uh, strength to his opponents. Yes. I thought that also lent a double meaning to the term shrug mm-hmm. in, in the title Atlas Shrug, which I thought was fascinating. Do you have, do you have this kind of inclination? Or mm, should I just... No, I didn't really go that much into the title. Right. I mean, I understand, I understood the metaphor, but, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting to see how, how, you know, previously I was just talking to you about how a person has an unidentified philosophies and, mm. you know, how these contradictions will e- eventually, you know, lead them to their logical climax and yeah. you know, he will feel conflict. And, yeah. and Reardon is a good example of, of, of this uh, logical, you know, this conclusion coming, you know, this conflict, right, coming together. So, so the key point that I think Elishog is trying to make right, mm. is that you know he, pe- Rand doesn't want people to feel like Riordan to end up like Riordan mm. you know they, they, he wants she wants the producers to feel su- self-sufficient to be to know that what they're doing is good mm. and, and, and you know they do not be you know, moved by external uh, you know people's opinions of them and what and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, like basically one, one of the strongest I think messages she wants to say is be proud of being a good producer. Yes. You know, you don't have to be ashamed if you are successful at what you do. Yeah. yeah. If you have done it honestly. Yes, and you have done exactly, it well. exactly. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, <laughs> that's one of the strongest messages and, and one, one, one of the reasons why oh, I really like the Ellis Shrug. So, all right, moving on, right? So, talking about the book and its influence. So, among the, the, the many things that people say about Ellis Shrug, and mm. there are a lot of criticisms as well. We will get to that later. <laughs> Uh, the, the one thing that jumps out at me is how many supporters hails its sort of influence where, you know, the oft- it's often quoted that it's the second most influential book behind the Bible in the US, mm-hmm. right? So this is like a, a, in a reference to a survey that was done in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it is somewhat outdated, the novel still does quite well tremendously where it uh, sort of easily generates up sales of uh, 100,000 100, upwards annually. Yeah. So what do you, why do you think that Alice Shrugged has been so influential and why does it remain you know, so popular or relevant uh, today? 
Well, I, I think Atlas Shrugged is, is popular in the same way that how the Hunger Games is popular or any, you know, you know, the, any, any novels that have a strong protagonist, mm. right? This, this is, I think this is so is because it, in a sense, it depicts the human being not as a slave to his external conditions, right? Mm. That, that, you know, he's capable of being a hero mm. a pe- uh, and he is capable of triumphing against adversary. Now, mm. uh, yeah, mo- because this, these are the books, right? You know, uh, there's this one, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell, right, uh, wrote wrote this book, a man, uh, a man with a thousand faces, mm-hmm. right. That he says that there are recurrent themes, right. You know, throughout societies, and and uh, you know, they they generally follow the same. You know, these these stories, right. They all follow a similar structure. You know, a hero mm-hmm. triumphing against odds, and you know, ultimately achieving success. Mm-hmm. And so I think, right, this this uh this is a there is a very similar parallel to as to why Atlas Shrugged is 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 still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Is because people. Desperately think right? they they need some some sort of spiritual fuel, some some you know some sort of guidance throughout their lives. Mm. So I think deep inside we all want to be we all want to have people to look up to, to admire, and that we personally dream of being heroes ourselves. Mm. So sadly, there are many critics who miss the entire point of the book, and yeah. and you know who end up believing that the book is a justification for some idea of the rich exploiting the poor. I mean, yeah. that's 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 what we all hear about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. B- building up on that, right. Right. You know, I, I don't know if you heard about this, but I, I found it fascinating that I, I read up on this lately that you know, uh, Alice shrugged uh, during the time when Obama was uh, was uh, be- became president of the United States, the sales of Alice shrugged jumped. I think it was five hundred thousand or something like that. Then when President Trump came in uh, and, won, and and won the presidency, the sales of nineteen eighty four <laughs> jumped up. So do you think sort of like? Uh, people respond to trends in, in politics <laughs> and it is sort of like, you know, start, start to think about, oh, I should start reading this kind of book to, to, to get a sense of how things are going to turn out. In I the mean, future. maybe. But but what I think is, you know, uh, you know Trump has often be, has been quoted to be, you know, a fervent supporter of Atlas Shrugged. But I mean, within objectivist circles, right, we, we think of him as very similar to Wesley Mulch, you know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, he, he's no hangrier than this, that's for sure, right? Yeah. All right. So, okay. So now we're going to move into objectivism yep. proper. And the, the way in this next section, how I want to do this is I want to go through the four key components of objectivism and to see sort of how they are played out in Elishrock or maybe how, you know, they are perhaps relevant in the modern economy. So mm-hmm. my, my copy of Elishrock was kind enough to contain a short summary of objectivism at the end. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you the headings of the four parts and then perhaps you can continue on uh, with your own explanations from there. Okay. Yeah. Right, so the first part, metaphysics, right? So here, here Rand is talking about uh, objective reality or, you know, the sort of uh, layman's terms, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. So tell us a little more about uh, what, what, uh, what Rand's views of uh, metaphysics is. Right, so uh, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this statement is actually from Francis Bacon. Mm. Right? He, he says, you know, in order to command nature... Right, we we must first obey the laws of nature. Mm. Right, the the reason why we're capable of building, you know, uh, giant structures or or you know, boil even hot water, you know, simple things like that, is because we know mm. and we obey by the laws that are set by reality itself. Right, so uh, we in order to to be able to live in this world, in order to be make sense of this entire world, we mm. must first understand that you know nature to be commanded must first be obeyed, and that that objective reality means that. Reality exists independent of our perception. That means reality is out there, mm. right? And our role as human beings, given that we have no automatic knowledge, is to you know, discover more about this reality, mm. right? And, and not to invent things about it. Mm. I see, I see. So, so what I find interesting about it, you know, this view of objective reality, right, is that it sort of contrasts with some of the, the philosophy that I read back in university, mm. particularly the philosophy of idealism, yeah. which uh, features as a central tenet in the, 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 the writings of Kant or Berkeley. So, <laughs> Everything is ideas. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, so, so, so this is a view that, you know, since, since all reality is perceived by individuals, right, it is actually the ideas that are real and the individuals can never know what uh, objective reality is, is itself. Yep. In the sense that, you know, I, I, I see a mic here, but I see it only through the lens of my own uh, perception, you know, yep. the light entering correct, my correct. eyes, stuff like that. And right. I cannot know actually what yeah, is the nature. You can't trust your senses, essentially. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the skeptic yeah. stance. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, the, the question itself it really kind of answers it. You know, all reality is perceived by individuals. So, you know, the individuals are there doing the perceiving. So 
the individuals exist first, right? Mm. Right. So Rand's metaphysics right, can be primarily described by yeah, a concept objectivists call the primacy of existence. That means mm. the world exists first, right? That then we see, then we see the world. So this see. this is in stark contrast with the primacy of consciousness, which she separates. You know, put put it as a separate concept. Yeah. So which the which is the view of idealists and rationalists, like you know, you know, people yeah. we talk about we talk about solipsism yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So so these people, right? They they believe that consciousness. Uh, be in the mind of God or mm. individuals mm. can exist prior to the existence of external entities. I know, I know, this is a lot to digest. <laughs> so basically, they're saying that the I okay. <clears throat> let's just use Plato as an example. Yeah. He's saying that, like you know, if he talks about the form of a horse, right? Yeah. He's yeah. saying that the form of the horse, right, can exist before existence exists. Yeah. Right. So then, then you know, when we perceive things, we see the form of the, you know a reflection of the form of the horse because mm. the the form of the horse has already existed prior to existence. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a bit hard to get, but yeah, okay. I, I I'll put this in the real life terms. Okay. Right. So does the chicken come first, or does the idea of a chicken come first? Mm. Right. So so do we do we do chickens exist in this world first? Then we you know we come up with the concept of chicken, or does, does the idea of a chicken come first? Yeah. Okay. See, so so the rationalists and the idealists they they believe that the idea of a chicken come first, less as you know evidenced by by Plato. Mm. Yeah. So. Mm. One one very famous proponent of, of this this you know a primacy of consciousness is is Descartes Descartes right. you know who objectivists believe put Descartes before the horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So 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 we we've gone through a little bit about uh, Rand's metaphysics yeah. right now. Uh, I want to ask you where do you sort of see Rand's metaphysics play out in in Atlas Shrugged? Well, it's it's a, it's a whole you know if if you know the metaphys- metaphysics hold true, then all all of you know all the rest follows true. Mm. So if existence is independent of consciousness, mm. that means that. Ex- external reality that we know of is not subject to change based on one's whims or desires mm. right this this means that the reality that we know mm. has a specific limited identity i mean infinity is a mathematical concept right mm. so there's no such thing as infinity in this in this world mm. so everything that exists is limited right maybe space is limited it's just that we don't know how limited it is it's mm. huge but mm. we, we don't know how so everything that we know is is limited in in, in quantity and quality so Things that exist must then always act in accordance with this identity. So essentially speaking, A is A. Mm. Uh, a rock cannot be a rock and a piece of cheese at the same time, yeah. right? This is especially crucial because this is the bedrock of science. You see, yeah. right? If if you know, and you you can, and you if water boils at hundred degrees sometimes, right? I mean pure water, hundred degrees sometimes, and you know, uh, doesn't boil at all at other times, and twenty five yeah. degrees sometimes, you you you'll never be able to get science. Yeah. You know, the world will be a complete chaos. Yeah. So this is the bedrock of science, and you can see the role of science and innovation playing out in the Atlas Shrugged. Mm. So while while you know all this, you know the what we are talking right, the philosophy, it seems quite commonsensical. Yeah. But you know there are many people, especially in the realm of politics, who believe that they can ban economic reality in yes. accordance with their whims. Yes. You know, you know they try to uh, eradicate scarcity and, yes. and stuff like that. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think also one of the most, uh, I think, particular points where, where, where this was actually, this idea was actually uh, fleshed out within Atlas Shrugged was uh, if, if you're talking about it in an economic setting, right, this idea of objective reality mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, the, the, the ban of pool, they introduce all these like new directives or policies. They are meant, you know, on, on its surface, it's meant to sort of like help out the people, help out those who are less successful, yep. but end up putting a sort of like a, obstacle or barrier to in, in, in the ways that in the way that uh, you yeah. know no, normal business people can actually make a profit or or, or do a uh, do a you know, you know run their own business right. you know and, and at one point right um, the eco- economy eventually in the long run if you do this if you have this kind of like economic policy the, the economy will suffer yes right and constantly these men of poor will always say no it's the capitalists that deserve us it's the producers that deserted us they went on strike yeah. that's why we're in this scenario yes. you know they, they refuse to, to believe their own reality that their, their own economic policies have led to this scenario yes. and also there, I remember vividly there was one point where where they were so, they were struggling so badly these men of poor they were so desperate to find some solution so that everyone can become wealthy again right mm-hmm. and they rope in Dagny Tagger and it says make it work make it work <laughs> <laughs> and Dagny's like I can't 
I can't, I can't do it. I can't no, do not it. Not alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I, I thought that was like a fascinating example of where well, it was introduced. I, I yeah. think, I think, I think the 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 set part of our times is that you know we too often, especially in modern times, we mm. we measure. Uh, you know, economic policies and mm. political policies based mm. on their intentions as opposed to their results. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure one, one famous economist also commented on that. Mm. So, so I think, you know, for a good step forward, right, especially in, in terms of, you know, to trying to achieve freedom is to, is to you know, uh, let people know that, that you know, these, these uh, goodwill intentions to try to improve the economy actually don't work. Yeah. And, and you know, it's actually um, it causes more problems than solves. Yeah. Right? Well, well, I, I don't want to say don't work. I think it would be sort of safer to say that they tend to have unintended consequences. They tend to play out, you know, not, 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 they don't have the results right. that they intend. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, yeah, that's true. I mean, they, they want to, uh, you know, they want to change a little part of reality without, mm. without, I mean, I think Rand also talked about this in the yeah. book. They want to change a little part of reality ignoring the rest of the consequences that it entails. Yeah. Right? You know, maybe, maybe it's true, you know, uh, Giving minimum wage, you know, I mean, I'm just using minimum wage yeah. as an example. Giving minimum wage might actually help some workers in the short term, mm. right? But it's going to cause more problems in the long term. And these are the things, right, that, that politicians don't necessarily care about because mm. their, their interests are not so much to, uh, you know, not the profit mo- motive, but mm. to, to secure themselves for another term. So if these short term solutions help them secure another term, mm. right, they're they more likely to, to choose such solutions. Mm. I see. I see. All right. So, so that's good. Um... Alright, let's move on to the second part now. So, in the second part of this uh, philosophy of objectivism, Rand talks about epistemology or sort of the philosophy of knowledge, right? Yeah. So here she has her, her as as her bedrock reason, the idea of reason. Yeah. Or here she has, she puts it in layman's terms: you can't eat your cake and have it too. So please help us sort of uh, unpack this uh, Rand's epistemology here. Right. Rand is saying here that you know man only has one source of knowledge. Right. Mm. This this is very. I mean, even though it seems to, to us to be quite commonsensical, mm. right? But uh, there, there, this this is actually very widely disputed amidst. Uh, philosophical circles mm. right at least at least if we consider you know faith faith-based philosophies as right as part of this equation right right so so Ren, Ren is saying here the man has only one source of knowledge and that only one avenue he can use to try to understand reality as we know it mm. and that is the faculty of reason mm. right uh, the what she means by you can't have your cake and eat it too and have it too mm. is that is that you know, there are people who try to mix it up. You know, there's people say, oh, why can't I just use reason sometimes and faith some, some other times, mm. right? When what, what happens is that they're actually contrasting, uh, you know, contrasting epistemic methods, mm. right? You can't favor evidence at, at sometimes and don't favor, you know, act without evidence at other times, mm. right? So this is, this is in accordance, right, with the metaphysical premises that we have talked about of identity, mm. that human beings must act like human beings. That means to say that if, if let's say it's true that, you know, uh, that reason is the only method that we can understand reality, this mm. would be true for all human beings, mm. right? And uh, so epistemology, right? I mean, the, the name is fi- five syllables, right? Mm. But I'll just break it. It's better understood as a theory of knowledge, yeah. right? So it basically, uh, you know, is a, is a theory of how men gain knowledge. Mm. I mean, we have knowledge, right? Mm. So, so, and it's, this is heavily influenced by a philosopher's views of metaphysics. Mm. So if we establish that reality acts independent of our whims, then the question here is that how can we gain knowledge of reality? Mm. So in understanding uh, Rand's philosophy, the crucial and revolutionary ideas of measurement omission right, stands in stark contrast with either intrinsicism, where the knowledge resides within the entity. Remember, okay, remember I talked to you about, <laughs> <laughs> remember I talked about the form of the horse, yeah. right? So Plato, people of intrinsicism, right? Yeah. Uh, these people would say that, you know, this, this uh, horseness, now it's inside the horse itself. Yeah. Right. So you when you see your eye, your brain just ma- magically just ding. You know, you, you you can see that horse is a horse because you know as for those who understand it, they will understand. For those that don't, no explanation is necessary. Okay. Yeah. Right. So this is intrinsicism. You know, yeah. something that this knowledge is in the the horseness is in the entity itself. Yeah. Right. Or the other variants of subjectivism where knowledge right is whatever an individual, a group, or God believes. Mm. Right. So. So, you know, usually you see this, uh, it's either this or that. It's either in the thing itself or it's either entirely subjective, right? Mm. So Rand's Rand's, uh, idea of measurement omission, right, is actually neither. So mm. she, she doesn't think that the thing is inside the object itself mm. and she doesn't think that it's completely up to the whims of people, mm. right? So uh, to concretize this, right, uh, Rand would say that hoarseness right, doesn't exist inside the horse itself 
and that you don't call it a horse because people say it's a horse, mm. but that you call it a horse because you have measured it in accordance with a certain standard. Right, mm. I mean, if, if you think of a horse in your head, you know, uh, it has to fulfill certain criteria before you will call it a horse, right? So you use this certain standard, and then you measure measure this entity. Okay, yes, it fits all these standards. It's a horse, mm. right? But you, what you do is after you measure that, you omit out all the unnecessary details. For example, a three-legged horse is still a horse, right? Mm. Right. So you you think, okay, you know, the legs are not essential, not essential part of a horse of of a horse, right? So you would still classify this animal as a horse. So mm. so what what we see here is uh measurement omission so in in her terms right it's it's like an algebraic e- equation mm. right you, you see there's anus right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this this thing right you, you see it is because you have abstracted right you have abstracted the essential element of of the horse yeah and then you you, you brought it to yourself as a concept in in the terms of knowledge yeah yeah so i see so 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 <laughs> to sort of like summarize that it's a uh, maybe it's sort of like you know, people before you, they sort of like under, uh, understood or maybe identified and classified sort of the key features of a horse. Yep. And once you sort of, once you receive that idea, you know, what are the features of a horse? Oh, it has a mare. Oh, it, no, no, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be other people. You know, you could, you mm. can have seen a horse for the first time, right? Mm. You, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, sure, you can have some insight about, right. about what, what a horse, you know, constitutes, right? right? But you can also learn from other people. Right, That's true. Right, right. But that does not mean, I mean, it's the same way you use the CM, right? The standard could be, you know, influenced by other people, right? It, but it doesn't make no, the, mm. the standard that you use might be influenced by other people, but it doesn't mean that the thing that you measure using the CM is non-objective. It just means that you're using a different standard, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, right, you will see that, you know, uh, 10 CM is is the same as the inch. I mean, the, the equivalent length right, of the right. inch. Because the, while the standard is different, the reality measure, I mean, the, the objective measurement remains the same, right? I see, I see. Okay, so um, I understand also that underlying Rand's epistemology is a statement about human nature as well, right? Where the ability of reason sort of depends on, you know, the individual choice to exercise it. So does this mean that Rand does not really advocate in, uh, for any part of you know uh, determinism? Oh yes, yes, she she certainly does not does yeah. not yeah advocate for any form of determinism, right? Uh, if given a question of uh man is you know there's the question of is man a product of nature or nurture, mm. right? Rand would say neither. I, I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, her belief is that human beings are all possess these self chosen values, right? Mm. I mean, you may be born black. Right, you may be born in a in a poor household, right? But these these things, right, do not determine your values for you. Yeah. Right. Your your genes don't don't automatically make you like certain things. Don't make you think of you know honesty as a virtue and yeah. things like that. You you don't automatically do these things, right? So these since these values are volitionally chosen, right, and uh, these are the the people that act on these values and achieve success in their lives, uh, properly deserve these achievements. Right, so this nature of manner right, is especially pertinent in this discussion that we're having because mm. we, I mean, we're we're in an economics podcast right now. <laughs> so even even within uh, economics itself, we can see the results of having determinism as a philosophical base. Mm. Right, it, it, there are there are theories that you know believe men to be oh, perfectly rational, like you know the the Homo economicus. Yeah. Right, and and you know they human beings are just not always perfectly rational. I yeah. mean, if, if human beings were always rational, right, then they have no choice but to be rational. Yeah. Then, then it would be determinism, right? Mm. So, uh, to be sure, rationality is a choice, much like a person's values are a choice. So, Rand rejects a determinism at its root. Yeah, so, so I have a question about that, right? So, what is actually Rand's um, delineation between what constitutes human, you know, what, what establishes human nature? So so we have this idea of individual choice, right, or exercising. Yeah. Does does the difference between a human and a non-human become, you know, the the exercising your reason? Well, um, Aristotle would classify human beings as the rational animal. I mean, we we mm. are animals, but there's the genus differentiator. Uh, so the genus is that we are animals, mm. and the different the things that sets us apart. So we right, are that, rational. Yes, yeah, is that we are we are we are you know what animals act on the perceptual level. You know they. They, they see things, you know, I see food, or oh, food, eat, you know, mm. the, the kind of thing. Human beings are capable of, uh, you know, talking, you know, talking of language and conversations of mathematics and, you know, all these projections, right? It's because mm. we have the conceptual faculty, the, the power of abstraction, you know. So when animals look at horses, they don't think, oh, that is a horse. They don't. They just think that is a thing, you know. They, they, yeah. don't, they don't identify it the way as we do, right? So, so 
that that's where what set us apart you know we can plan for for the future in the long term you know we that you know this is why we can do farming mm. i mean animals certainly don't do farming right yeah yeah, yeah is why we can even have a discussion about economics to begin with right right so, so the key difference between us and animals is the ability to to uh, you know conceptualize things and, yeah. and i think that that's the yeah, that's that's what sets us apart. Yeah. So so the reason the reason I I, I ask this question, right? Because there are some parts in uh, Ella Shrub where she sort of describes this, you know, the villains, the people of poor as sometimes in some instances being non human. Yeah. So so what what I what I'm what I sort of like understood from, from what you explained earlier yeah. is that, you know, by definition of you using sort of the things that require reason, you know, language, mathematics, or classification, science, uh, you know, all these kind of things, you are being human because you are using your faculty of yes. reason. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so does that mean, you know, in, in Rand says that if you don't, in, in instances where you don't use your faculty of reason, you are, you know, non-human? Yeah, you, you essentially, you're, you know, uh, going back, you are, you are cutting off the differential part. You know, if you mm. act perceptually, right, instead of thinking about doing things, you just act like a, like a so-called robot, right? Yeah. Right? But we don't, you know, animals, they have instincts, they can be a robot, you know, they can follow these instincts, do, but we don't have these instincts, right? We don't, that we, our, no, nobody, in a, nobody in our head tells us what we need to do, what we need to achieve in our lives, you know, whether we need to swim upstream. No, we don't, we don't have things like that. So, so the point here is that because we don't have automatic knowledge, mm. right, and that you know we we need to uh, find find it out ourselves. We need to con- conceptualize, and conceptualizing is the thing that makes us human beings, mm. right. So if we act uh, on the you know the on the level of a brute. I mean, like an animal, right? Trying to, you know, if I see food, I just need to snatch it, which is what animals do. They, yeah. they snatch, they kill each other for food, yeah. right? So if you act on that level, then you're not being a man. I mean, in in terms of uh, conceptually saying, like, yeah. yeah. But of course, physically, you're still a man. It's just that you're not acting like one. I see. Yeah. I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I just, throughout your explanation, there's this great irony that struck me, you know? Yeah. In, in sort of like public, maybe public perception, right? There's this idea that people who use reason too much or they think too much or they don't have, you know, enough feelings, yeah. they are the ones who are, you know, inhuman. <laughs> whereas, whereas people who are... Who, who <laughs> no, no, I, I think... I think yeah. the, the thing... Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, you're right. But the thing is, Ren is not saying, you know, you should suppress your emotions, be a stoic, stoic right? No, no, no. Ren is not yeah. saying that. Ren is saying, think first, feel later. I mean, yeah, sure, we feel things, right? We feel sadness, we feel... But, but I mean, people. the problem with people is that we don't con- consider uh, why we feel I mean I mean there's no choice about the fact that we feel things right but why do we feel these things why why does certain why do certain things make us happy right or why do certain things make us ca- make us sad so mm. what Rand is trying to say here is that don't take your feelings as self-evident right mm. they are the products of something right, right find out right, what right. creates these products and find out whether these are adhering to reality Right, you don't garbage in, garbage out. You don't, you don't, you don't follow. You know, it's like a self. You know, then then people feel entrapped, and you know they have depression. They're trying to find this elusive thing called happiness, but yeah. they don't even know what causes happiness. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so you you see the culture of our times. You know, you so many self help books, but people are getting you know into more psychiatric problems day by day. <laughs> so yeah, I think philosophy is a very crucial you know crucial thing that people need to understand and to grasp so that they can further better their lives mm. sort of an understanding of why they feel this way maybe have like a system to fall back on to refer or to think about yeah. carefully right? yes that's yeah. correct yeah that, 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 that really plays into uh then the, the, the next question on us is like you know how do you see Rand's epistemology playing out in the shrug i think uh when you're talking about you know uh, questioning your feelings or questioning your emotions you see this a lot in when, when you're reading about protagonists right mm. Frank Rudin is always questioning why do I feel this way why do mm. I feel that way what is the source of my guilt and yeah. stuff like that and then when you go to pe- the, the moochers you know people like James Taggart and such they, whenever people ask them about why you feel this way, they, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they just, you know, why, why, why are you being impractical, you know? Yeah. Yeah, people are suffering, you know, don't you care about other people? And, that, and that, that's what they always say. Yeah, and, the, and the thing is, they, they don't even know why they're doing that. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. James, James, for example, you know, married... Uh, Cherry? Yeah. He, he, he did it because... Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, right? Yeah. So she, he married her mm. and he, he, he did it because, you know, he, he didn't want to identify it, but mm. he did it because of, you know, he wanted people to think of him as a benevolent CEO and, mm. and things like that. Mm. But he, he doesn't know why he wants to do that. Why, why is it that he wants to, to gain the approval of people, right? He, he, you know, and things like that. So you see, the thing, 
his, you know, while Elishwag is not primarily rooted in epistemology, mm. right, but primarily rooted in ethics and politics, but you can see instances of, of uh, you know, ep- how epistemology moves people mm. in, in, in throughout the, the entire book. So uh, I don't see a lot of instances in, of, in it in Elishwag, but, mm. uh, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's one of the key things that she was trying to show in it, mm. but you definitely see traces of it here and there, especially in the Gout speech, you know. Mm. Ap- apparently she took two years just to finish that, that oh. one chapter. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, you know, the, especially the points about the mind being sovereign, you know, that, that it has volition and can only acquire knowledge through the use of reason, mm. right? Naturally, Rand covers a lot a lot more ground. I mean, this this whole context, you know, the whole discussion of epistemology is a very complex, mm. complex one. I can't cover it in this entire podcast. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if you're interested, you could read the, the Introduction to Objectivist uh, Epistemology. I, I think it's a perfect book for people that... That are they are interested in you know how people gain ideas and, and things like that. Mm. All right, that's good. Yeah, I I, I just want to add you know where where you talk about maybe um, the 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 idea of epistemology wasn't really as so explicitly fleshed out mm. within Atlas Shrub. I thought that throughout the book we constantly see this motif of individuals being unable to think of them think for themselves mm-hmm. or even unable to make a decision by themselves. You know, one of the funniest parts of the book I thought was towards the end when Dagny Tiger tries to enter the State Science Institute to rescue John Gall. Mm-hmm. And he confronts the guard at the entrance and she tries to convince the guard that she's been authorized to enter and the guard who does not think for himself cannot decide if she's bluffing yeah. or if she's telling the truth. And just following orders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she's th- and, and you know the guard's saying things like, you know, who am I to choose? Or I can't decide uh, I'm not supposed to decide it's sort of like cowardly position yeah yeah but but it's, it's true I mean uh, if, if you mean if you think this is just a caricature this this has happened many times I mean even if, if you think about it in uh, Nazi Germany you yeah. know this, these people genuinely feel bad but they're yeah. just following orders they, they don't think for themselves they don't do what's right. They just do whatever the state tells them to do, and 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 regrettably, this is this is how how you know most 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 police forces are operate around the world, mm. right? They, they 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 think they're just doing their job. You know, they they don't actually evaluate whether what they're doing is right or wrong. You know, mm. for them, I think in some sense, uh, legality has replaced morality, and and that's really mm. sad. Mm. Let's see. Let's see. All right. Speaking of morality, we're moving to the next part now, talking about. Uh, her ethics, uh, the ethics portion of objectivism. <laughs> so, all right. So the main focus of her ethics, the reason why I'm laughing here, because this is one of the most controversial yeah. uh, segments of objectivism. Her main, her main idea is self-interest, right? Yes. The tagline being, man is an end in itself. So already I can hear a lot of people uh, cringing or, or you know, uh, arguing in, in their own heads, right? So, why don't you try and help us to unpack this tenet of uh, objectivism first, and it will meet the, the criticisms later. All right. So, so uh, by saying that man is an end in himself, and Miss mm. Rand is saying that the human being does not serve any purpose aside from his own. Mm. I mean, he, he decides where he where what his purpose is, mm. and he he decides whether he's going to achieve it or he he's not. Mm. So, in other words, a human being is not born born to exist as a tool for the fulfillment of some others' whims or dictates, mm. human beings are not means to some form of ends. Mm. Right? His goal is not to serve the good that is above, beyond, and independent of his own conception of what he believes to be good. Mm. Right? So this is, this is especially important because just as an example, right, wars and, and murders right, have been committed in the name of the public good. I yeah. mean, people have said that the public good is beyond, above, you know, more yeah. important than personal good. Right? Yeah. So the point that Rand was trying to make here is that there is no such thing as the public good unless mm. it was good for each and every member of the public. Right? Mm. So, I mean, you wouldn't say uh, that something and, and- is good for furniture, you know, all furniture. And is that even, is that idea of the public good where it's, uh, Rand's idea of public good where it's, it's, you know, good for every single individual, is that even possible? Well, Um, yes. Uh, Rand Rand says that the only way that you can, there's a good for all individuals is, for example, you wouldn't, reason is good for all individuals, Mm. right? Uh, Protecting, if a government protects rights, Right? Mm. It's good for every single individual. So there are instances where there is something that is objectively good for the public, mm. right? But uh, the way that you know the government use uh, the state uses it, right, is is often often you know very contrived. Like, you know, they usually they use some utilitarian measure mm. or, or use some you know uh you know help the weak at the expense of the poor. Mm. So so as long as there's some some somebody who is not actually receiving this good, right, it cannot be construed as the public good. That's mm. that's what she's saying. So I mean, uh, the example I was giving is you you can't say that something like say. Uh, 
a particular sprayer. It's good for furniture, unless mm. it's good for all furniture. I mean, if it's good on chairs, but terrible on beds, right? You mm. wouldn't say it's good for furniture, right? Right, right. right? So on the on the same level, you can't say that something is good for the public if it's only helpful to some members of the public, but not to all. Mm. Mm. I see, I see. All right, so... Um so as, as I mentioned earlier, right, this part of Rand's philosophy is arguably the most controversial. So many people have criticized Rand's message in Elder Shrub as advocating for selfishness or materialistic gain, right? So how would you justify self-interest against something like altruism or, you know, putting the interests of your neighbors above that of yourself? Well, this, this materialistic gain is, is a loaded term, but I'll explain more of that later. Mm. So, but you're right, you know, Rand does get a lot of undue flack for support of selfishness as a moral ideal. Mm. I think I think the moment people hear about, you know, selfishness, they, they get triggered, you know, like, as, like most social justice warriors. <laughs> yeah. right? but, but, you know, the thing here is that, you know, Rand, you have to start thinking of what selfishness actually means. I mean, selfishness just means concern with yourself, right? You, you don't, you don't, there's no, uh, you're just putting in a lot of intellectual baggage uh, or like you know you see the image of a tyrant you know, s- just stomping all over people and they, they, that is the image of selfishness that you mm. see so for all the perceived differences right but selfishness in its colloquial form like you know the, the one that triggers people right and selflessness are but different sides of the same sacrificial coin you see, the key constant between both concepts, the, the, the colloquial selfishness and selflessness, mm. is the concept of sacrifice. Now, I, I, let me explain this. Mm. A, a selfless man sacrifices himself, mm-hmm. right? but a purportedly selfish man sacrifices others. So, so you mm. see, uh, this this is uh, the the so called selfish man is you know the key proponent is usually Nietzsche, mm. you know he he he's for the Ubermensch and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Nietzsche's belief in the selfish man is, you know, the the the, the guy that the the, the super uh, the the superman that you know just tramples over others to get to the race to the top. You know, he calls it the survival of the fittest and things like that. But mm. the the key point here to see, and that we need to notice is that both involve the idea of sacrifice, mm. right? So here's where Rand steps in, right? That Rand has always been often compared to Nietzsche, but actually their 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 belief in morality is is very different, mm. right? She essentially says, now hold on a minute, now why must there be sacrifice? I mean, it does make sense, right? Mm. So, wh- why is sacrifice the key constant in all uh, um, uh, ethical dilemmas? I mean, the right. first thing you remember, think about the trolley problem, right? right? right. You know, somebody must die, yeah. right? You know, uh, uh, or you think about the uh, prisoner's dilemma and things like You know, this these are not things that we, we actually see in real life, you know. These are things that are, are made, you know, that, that somebody, you know... Contrive them. Yeah, yes, must sacrifice themselves. Mm. So, so uh, what, what Rand thinks is that, you know... Uh, you know there shouldn't be sacrifice in morality. Sacrifice is is the is the is the off tangent. You know it it doesn't happen in reality. People need ethics, right? Not to deal with sacrifice, mm. but to deal with their own personal lives, mm. right? So what's wrong with a person living for the sake of himself, mm. with himself as the goal, without sacrificing others? Mm. See, the person who requires the existence of others to live to trample on, right? In, in the colloquial, such as in the colloquial meaning of selfishness, it's not truly selfish at all. Mm. I mean, if, imagine a tyrant, right? A tyrant needs the ta- taxes of the of the citizens to survive, right? Yeah. Without them, he, he would die. Yeah. So uh, you can't say that the tyrant is selfish because he needs the existence of others. He's a second-hander, as Rand would put it in, in her book. So... Uh, you can you can see this this in Atlas Shrugged, where our protagonists have to make the oath uh, the oath at at Gulch Gulch. Right? Yeah. I swear by my life and the love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, mm. nor ask another man to live for mine. Mm. Now the specifics of uh, Rand's morality is way too comprehensive, like epistemology, right. and too detailed for me to get into here. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is clear. You see, man as a creature of choice mm. with no automatic knowledge needed a code of moral values to guide his life. Morality is not about sacrifice mm. and, it, and its purpose is to allow, allow man to live a proper fulfilling life. Mm. So you, you see the personal selfish importance right? that, that you know, morality has for the human being. So the logical climax of the creed of sacrifice can be found in this passage of Gout's speech which mm. I will read out for you. I, I personally find this very inspiring. Right, right. Okay. If you start, however, as a passionless blank, as a vegetable seeking to be eaten, with no values to reject and no wishes to renounce, you will not win the crown of sacrifice. It is not a sacrifice to renounce the unwanted. It is not a sacrifice to give your life for others if death is your personal desire. To achieve the virtue of sacrifice, you must want to live. You must love it. 
You must burn with passion for this earth and for all the splendor it can give you. You must feel the twist of every knife as it slashes your desires away from your reach and drains your love out of your body. It's not mere death that the morality of sacrifice holds out to you as an ideal, but death by slow torture. Mm. It's really powerful, man. I find it, I find it really fascinating what you just read because, like, in in it's basically saying in order to make sacrifice meaningful, you must have something to give up. If your main value is that you're always giving away or the your own interests are second to that of the other person, you have nothing to give up. Yeah. No, there's this, nothing of value of you to give. This is exemplified yeah. primarily in in you know uh, Kant's morality, the ontology, mm. right? It, that you need to act not out of duty but mm. acting from duty. Right? So mm-hmm. in order to be moral, right, you must personally, uh, for example, in, in the instance of you, you cannot lie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you must personally think of lying as a virtue, right? Mm-hmm. And then you must deny yourself lying, de- deny yourself this value in order to be moral, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you don't do that, I mean, if you, if you do it because you think of lying as, you know, personally uh, as a disvalue, right? Mm-hmm. If you do it in accordance to your own values, mm-hmm. it's selfish and therefore Immoral. Mm. So, so here, here you see this, this, you know, this deontology has been making its rounds around the world. So, I mean, the the key, the key to conflicting ideologies, deontology and utilitarianism. Mm. But, but I, I won't talk about much of that here. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, previously you were talking about uh, Rand's, uh, you know, morality about materialistic gain. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to add on that man, Rand was not primarily focused only on materialistic gain. I mean, if you really look at Elishrod, there are people in living there, like uh, you know. Yeah, they, they, they are not rich. You know, mm. uh, God was, was not very rich, mm. right? There are people that are happy, content, living, you know, simple, you know, uh, lives without money. So the, the point is, is, is you see this mind-body dichotomy, right? Mm. That we as a gener- generation have subscribed to, right? Mm. Either you live a life of recluse, like some monk, right? Yeah. And, and self-denial as an idealist, yeah. right? Or you live your life selfishly and lavishly as a materialist. Yeah. So, you know, you see this two, this, this huge dichotomy, but, yeah. but it's just not like that. You no, know, Rand would say, that all gain, right? Even spiritual gain is a selfish and impeccably moral, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you choose, if you learn, I mean, for for example, philosophy, knowledge, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's a so called spiritual gain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that is selfishly important to you, mm-hmm. right? You, there is no no dichotomy between between uh you know I, idealist you know idealism and and the materialism. No no no. Mm-hmm. This life is about achieving values, and and Ren 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 would have endorsed that. Mm. I see, I see. Alright, so before we move on to the last uh, section, right, I just want to touch on this because I, I thought this was really fascinating the way it uh, uh, played out in Atlas Shrug. So we see one of the most interesting, one of the more interesting applications of Rand's ethics is within relationships, right? Yeah. Uh, between whether this be in the family or in like a personal individual relationship. Yeah. So this is, it is depicted as akin to trading right yeah in this sense you get together with someone on the basis that it serves your own self-interest your own happiness your values and you offer your time effort and love in exchange for how your partner can meet these interests so i think this is and and i'm not sure about my own position about this i I think in some sense there, there is some argument to be made for unconditional love or obligation that sort of thing but you know, I also I also think that there is some fundamental truth to this idea. What is your own opinion on well, this? Well, you know, just call it unconditional. I mean, there's this idea of, you know, you need to do... See, unconditional love right, is not what people make it out to be. Mm. See, unconditional here means that you don't love this person because, you know, he's good. You don't love it because, you know, he's successful, he's smart. You don't mm. love him because intelligent. Mm. You know, you don't love him because he, he personally, you know, uh, you know, wants a lot of things out of life. You know, mm. you don't love him for his values. Mm. You love him... It's you know, without regard to those values, right? So I mean, if if the the whole key concept of love, right? Love has to be, I mean, like friendship. You know, these things, right, have to be rooted in value itself. You know, you esteem someone. You you think this person, right, is a good person mm. that you want to make his acquaintance because he is of value to you, mm. right? You can't you can't take that key concept, that essential concept of love, and then take it away and say, you know, what's left is still love. It's not. You mm. you know, uh, an essential concept once removed from the concept, right, subverts the concept entirely. So when when we talk about unconditional love, right, actually, I think right, it's an oxymoron to some regard because mm. all love is conditional. You, I mean, not in a bad way. You know, but a lot of people think that all oh, conditional love is bad but but you think of it as as you know as uh, a person has to earn your love 
Right, you, mm. you can't if you give someone undeserved love, right? That's just just. It's bad for both parties. Yeah, it's just right? bad for you. Just pretending to to love someone, right? That's, yeah, yeah, and and you know, uh, it's sad that this has been touted as a moral ideal for a lot of people. Mm. But of course, I mean, I usually people don't mean that when they talk about un- unconditional love, and and that's that's where it gets tricky, you know. You know, during that that one moment, you know, the the point of philosophy, right, is that. Uh, most of the time people can survive you know the people will, will find a way to survive but during that crucial moment right between you know sometimes during that crucial moment where you have to, under exceeding pressure right you have mm. the urge to either give in to your, your emotions mm. and, and you know just oh you know if people say you ought to have unconditional love you know if enough peer pressure yeah. you know succumbs uh, you know uh, accumulates against you yeah. yeah so will you succumb or will you stand by your principles and and Rand is just providing you the intellectual ammunition uh, to so, so-called defend yourself against such such ideas in fact in a book right uh philosophy who needs it right? in, in one of her uh, titular essays mm. right? she, she says that a political debate a political uh, attack right, is just like a, a battle with muskets but a battle of philosophy right, is a flu, flu-blown nuclear war because this is, this is ultimately the, the, you know, the battle of, of premises so, mm. so that's why you, 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 see, you see all these all this things all playing out in, in Atlas Shrugged I see I see so let's move on to the final portion now. Okay. We talk about uh, politics, okay. right? So Rand's politics and uh, in, in her objectivism, where her, her main focus here she wants to introduce is the idea of capitalism, right? The tagline being "Give me liberty or give me give me death." So this this uh, final part of Rand's philosophy is perhaps most relevant to this podcast, right? Where we talk about economics and stuff. So explain why Rand advocated for a system of you know capitalism instead of socialism or communism. Well, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, I think this is very relevant to to you know, a uh, man is born free, mm. right? But ev- yet everywhere he is in chains, right? <laughs> so 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 yeah. Essentially, you know, we our nature is to be free animals, free free from the from the you know uh, mm. threat of force, mm. right? So so I I suppose you know in 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 that short encapsulation, Rand is just trying to make the case right that if we can't live out the the lives as men as free animals, then we might as well die. So you see now that you see the point here is that there are a lot of defenders of, of capitalism, you know, but Rand's approach to, to capitalism is quite different from most of his alleged champions. Mm. Uh, her defense of capitalism not based on the fact that it provides the most material welfare. Mm. I mean it does. It, mm. This is this is a, some form of consequentialism. Mm. But rather because it's the only system that's consonant with the idea of individual rights. Right? Mm. So to better understand this, right, it's not because capitalism makes people rich that Rand advocated capitalism. Mm. It's because it's the only morally just system around. Mm. See, in, in all other variants of, of uh, you know, of you know, socialism or communism, the, the state is effectively amoral. It dictates what dictates, right? What is moral and what's not, mm. right? The, the state says, oh, you know what? Uh, send these people to the gulags, mm. right? And, and, you know, they think of it as moral. They, they are the arbiters of morality. Mm. They, they, they are out of the zone, so to speak, yeah. right? But Rand is saying, you know what? Hold them morally accountable, Right, mm. they have to respect. You know, human being. You know, your your citizens have to respect rights. So your government also has to re- respect rights. Mm. Right. So this is entirely consonant with Rand's earlier assertion of man is an end in himself. Mm. The crucial distinction between a consequentialist capitalist and a Randian capitalist is that is best illustrated in this example. Uh. Mm. If a person were capable of inventing a socialist or communist state that was capable of, you know, creating more wealth at the cost of its citizens, maybe if I kill ten percent of my citizens, you know, I get more wealth. Mm. Let's say, uh, Rand would still be consistent consistently against it. The mm. consequentialist capitalist because he's focused on the you know on the, the results. results yeah. right? he, he's not so much concerned about the, the human rights, mm. you know, the infringement infringement there. Mm. Right. So, so, so Rand is more focused on sort of like the principles behind yes, and the rather principles, than sort of like and, and, where, and the moral principles guiding capitalism. Mm. I see. Okay, so um so I, I have one criticism here, right? Uh, yeah. that I want to bring up. So one of the criticisms of uh, Ella Schrock by this is raised by Whitaker Chambers mm-hmm. uh, was that the depiction of politicians and the kinds of policies that they introduced in the book were, were wildly exaggerated. So how would you respond to this? Well, I don't think those policies were wildly exaggerated at all. I mean, maybe in the United States, but you, you see that uh, see them actually happening in socialist utopias all over the world, right? So, uh, I mean, I just use okay. Let's just use one in the United States. You yeah, see the yeah. anti dog eat dog laws. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're remarkably remarkably sim- similar to the antitrust laws that we have in the states now. Right? Mm. Yeah, but you see the, the the point here, the resemblance here is of little importance. Mm. The point here is that as a work of fiction, right? Ellis Shrugg was not meant to be a new 
newspaper. It's not going to say, you know what, these things are going to be believable. This is what is. No, it doesn't do that. It mm. tells you what what it might be, what it could be. Mm. So so it, it doesn't describe, you know, uh, uh, what is, but rather what can and should be. In other words, Atlas Shrugged demonstrated what would happen to society if ideal men and villains came mm-hmm. together, what mm-hmm. they would do right, if they were all consistent in their principles. Mm-hmm. So it was meant to be a warning and not meant to be descriptive. I mean, yeah, this is a work of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the unfortunate thing that is that it bears more and more resemblance to the policies that that you know countries around the world have adopted thus far. Yeah. So it's like almost some kind of prophecy coming true. And and I think, you know, if if you care about liberty and and you know and freedom uh, this is something that you should be worried about. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know when when you say about how it's sort of like similar to stuff, uh, some of the policies in the US, right? Yeah. I'm kind of uh, it, it sort of brought to mind, you know, the situation in Venezuela right now. Yeah. You know how their their government introduces all these socialist policies, but they take they take over all the industries, and you know, you know, you have the strike happening in um in Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. You also have a lot. There's also this uh, sort of brain drain coming out of Venezuela as yeah. well. All the engineers, all their you know, chief people, especially in the oil sector, uh, there was a strike as well that happened in Venezuela. So it, it, it's, uh, you know, kind of coincidental in that sense. Yeah, but but it also, it, it just, it's just to show that it does happen, uh, these kind of instances. And, you know, this this tagline of give me liberty or give me death is not really... Yeah, but Venezuela. You know, I, I think the Venezuelan government, right, will, will still adopt the policy. Oh, the problem is that the citizens are too selfish. They they are not selfless enough. You know, it's just, just expected to live up to some moral ideal, right? Yeah. That involves the sacrifice of ourselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think one one of the main reasons that you know socialism fails is that because you know, uh, they don't take into account human nature. I mean, you know, in Adam Smith, we've, we've talked about that invisible mm. hand and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you know, socialism tries to go around that, you know, trying to do a, the visible hand, right? So, yeah, that's why it fails. Mm. Okay. So, all right. So, so they, then they're just trying to, to wrap up this part then. So, where do you see the uh, sort of like the politics of uh, objectivism being played out in Alice Shrub? Yeah, I think it's everywhere. I mean, mm. it, uh, the more obvious of examples would be the instances like the moratorium of brains, mm. right? But I think it's the most prominent in the indictment of Hank Riordan. You know, they, they try to, you know, persecute him. Yeah, right? yeah. And Hank Riordan is their great, you know, the one that's on, the only ones that's left. Yeah. They are a great producer, the one who's stuck by them because he felt bad for mm. leaving his work. Mm. And he was punished simply because he was great. You know, he just didn't want to do... Yeah, what what they wanted him to do. So yeah. I, I think I, I personally like like this quote and I think it's a perfect way to close this, you know, discussion on on mm. Shrug. Mm. See, uh, let there be no misunderstanding about me. If it is now the belief of my fellow men who call themselves the public that their good requires victims, then I say, the public good be damned, I will have no part of it. <laughs> Very powerful stuff. Alright, so with that brings the end to today's uh, episode. Thank you so much, Devin, for hey, no being for, for being a guest on the show. Is there any place where people can find you or reach you? You know, yeah, uh, I, you, I can be found on you know the libertarianism.sg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a libertarian. Uh, you know, it's a libertarian society that I've formed together with a few of my libertarian peers. Mm-hmm. We talk about freedom, economics, philosophy, mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. So if you guys want to reach me, you can email me. You know, that my contact contact is just on the site itself. Mm. You can reach me there. Alright. Alright, so as usual, if you like this episode, you can help by liking, sharing, and by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. So this has been your host, Danny, with guest Devin at the Economical Rights Podcast, and we hope you tune in next time where we serve the grains of capitalism.